Let's hear God's word, Micah chapter 4, beginning with verse 9. Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in your midst? Has your counselor perished? For pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in birth pangs. For now you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field, and to Babylon you shall go. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now also many nations have gathered against you who say, Let her be defiled, and let our eye look upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, nor do they understand his counsel. For he will gather them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples. I will consecrate their gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace when the Assyrian comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. They shall waste with a sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrance. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, and when he treads within our borders. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Micah chapter 5, verse 6. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask you to draw near to us now so that your word may work in us according to the power of the Holy Spirit, that which is well-pleasing in your sight. We acknowledge, Lord, our weakness. We acknowledge that it is difficult sometimes to pay attention It is difficult to understand. It is difficult to believe. It is difficult to obey. Lord, we say, we mention these difficulties not as an excuse, but as an acknowledgement of our need for your help. And we pray that on every level, Lord, from the most basic of listening to the most difficult of carrying out in our lives, you would be with us today overcome every weakness, every distraction, every deficiency, so that your word would work powerfully in our hearts, giving us what we need, encouraging us, reminding us of the truth, pointing us to Christ, and equipping us to glorify his name throughout this week. In his name we ask these things. Amen. The book of Micah is structured with a recurring pattern, judgment, then blessing, judgment, then blessing, and finally, judgment, then blessing. Chapters 1 and 2 
are mostly judgment, and then the couple of verses at the end of chapter 2 are blessing. Chapter 3 is predominantly judgment, and then chapters 4 and 5 are predominantly blessing. And then chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 are mostly judgment, and then the end of chapter 7 is blessing. So you have that triple division of judgment and blessing, and they're all marked with a summons to hear. You have it in chapter 1, verse 2, hear, all you peoples. You have it in chapter 3, hear now, O heads of Jacob and you rulers of the house of Israel. And you have it in chapter 6, verse 1, hear now what the Lord says. So that pattern in the book of Micah is very clear. And that should also make it clear to you that we're jumping into the middle of the longest section of blessing in the book. Chapter 3 is judgment. Chapters 4 and 5 are blessing. Now, we might wonder, why did Micah set his book up that way? What's the meaning of that? Well, there's a couple of things that can be said. One is that that is very realistic. That is how things go in life, isn't it? There's judgment of one kind or another. There's hardship. There's difficulty. There's affliction. There's suffering. And there's also blessing. But if you work through the pattern, it's judgment, blessing, judgment, blessing, judgment, blessing. There's an alternation of one over against the other because that is reality in this world. In the bad days, we can remember that good days are coming. But in the good days, we can also remember that they don't last forever, that new problems will emerge. So I think Micah sets it up that way in part just because it's realistic. It's true to experience. But that's not the only reason. This is part of the history of the people of God. There's these recurring patterns. And those recurring patterns have a couple of valuable lessons to teach. Remember with me briefly the history of the children of Israel. They're in Egypt. And they're in Egypt, first of all, to save their lives. First of all, Egypt is a blessing. It's the place where they can find food when there wasn't enough to eat where they had been. But then Egypt turns into a curse, doesn't it? It becomes the house of bondage. Well, they're let out of that. They're brought into freedom from Egyptian bondage, but then they're in the wilderness. Now, the wilderness is a place of freedom, but it's also a place of testing. It's also a place of difficulty. Well, then they cross the Jordan River. They live in the promised land. God has brought them home, and what a blessing that is. But what do they do with that blessing? Well, because of their sin, they bring Egyptian conditions into their free home. And so you have again and again in the period of the judges, either people who lived within the boundaries rising up and oppressing them. You even have an Israelite, Abimelech, rising up and oppressing them. Or you have people from outside coming in and oppressing them like was the, for instance, with the Midianites in the time of Gideon. 
there's a lesson there. The lesson is, wherever you go, there you are, if I can put it in those general terms. If, by some impossibility, you could go to heaven itself, unpurified from sin, do you know what would happen? You would ruin heaven, at least for yourself. You would turn heaven itself into a place of misery, into a place of bondage, into a place of oppression, because the fundamental problem is within. God takes his people out of Egypt, but they carry Egypt in their hearts. God brings his people into the land of promise, and they bring their sin and their idolatry in with them. And so there's always this pattern of judgment and blessing, this alternation in the history of the people of God because they continue to fall into sin. There's a very valuable lesson for us there, and that is that we need a deliverance that goes deeper than just our circumstances. Your biggest problem is not your problems that are around you. Your biggest problem is your own heart. I know I say this a lot. I continue to say it because I continue to see it in Scripture, and it continues to be true. You are your own biggest problem. That's not to say you don't have other problems. That's not to say other people don't contribute to them. But the biggest one, the worst one from your perspective is you yourself. We need God to work in us in that regard. Now, there's another reason for this alternation, though, and that is so that when we're in hard times, when it is a season of judgment, we would not despair. We would not say, oh, everything is over. I'm being afflicted, and that's the end of it. There will never be anything but affliction from here into eternity. That's sort of where we begin when Micah asks the question, why do you cry aloud? He even says, be in pain and labor to bring forth. And he says, you shall go forth from the city. You shall dwell in the field. To Babylon, you shall go. You might be saying, hold on a moment. You said this was a section of blessing. None of this sounds like a blessing. Well, there's always that intermingling because what does God do? He brings blessing out of judgment. He says, to Babylon you shall go, there you shall be delivered. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. In God's mysterious economy, the judgment that comes, the punishment that falls, is not the end of the story, at least not until it is. When chastisement comes to God's people for their sin, it's with a view to blessing. It's with a view to deliverance. Well, that alternation, that pattern, that mingling of blessing and judgment brings us to our chapter, chapter 5, and to the situation that Micah is envisioning here. He's envisioning the people of God with armies, with troops, 
gathered against them. He's envisioning the people of God in a humiliated condition. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. That means there's absolute disrespect for the authorities in Israel coming from foreign enemies. There's the situation, the humiliation, the disgrace, the oppression, the attacks from others. There's the judgment side of the coin. And then there's a contrast. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. And now the blessing that arises out of judgment begins to be unfolded when we're told about the double origin of the Messiah. Where does the Messiah come from? Well, he comes from Bethlehem. The one who is to be ruler of Israel arises out of Bethlehem. Now, that's significant for a couple of reasons. One reason it's significant is it tells you that at the time that he arises, there will be no Davidic monarch on the throne. The judge of Israel has been smitten with a rod upon the cheek. David, of course, was from Bethlehem. We've considered that previously in our series. His greater descendant, the one to be ruler over all Israel, will also be from Bethlehem. But how does that happen when David made Jerusalem the capital city? Well, it shows you the line of David is no longer in charge. There's a king in that capital, but it's not a Davidic king. In fact, it's an Edomite. It's an Edomian king, Herod. There's a situation of humiliation. There's a situation of oppression. In fact, even Joseph didn't actually live in Bethlehem. He only had to go to Bethlehem because of the census or the taxation that was being made under Caesar Augustus. From this situation of humiliation arises the ruler. There's the historic connection to Bethlehem, which emphasizes his Davidic descent, which emphasizes that he comes as God's way of keeping his covenant with David. So there's a, there's a bright side, there's a blessing side to it, but there's also the dark side. He's coming because the lineage of David has been reduced to poverty and removed from power. The judge of Israel has been struck on the cheek with a rod. But I said the double origin. There's one origin out of Bethlehem. But then there's another origin, which is mentioned when it says, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Now, there are a couple of different ways that people understand this whole idea of whose goings forth, whose emanations, whose sallies are from of old, from everlasting. We could adopt the approach that John Calvin takes in his commentary on this and see it as a reference to all of the activity of God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, in the Old Testament. He was present at creation in the powerful word that caused the light to come into existence. He was present in the Garden of Eden. He was announced there as the seed of the woman. 
and so on. You could trace it through the Old Testament that there were many goings forth. There were many emanations. There was much activity on the part of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, before he came out of Bethlehem, before he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now, that certainly was a going forth, but it wasn't the first one. It wasn't the only one. Or we could adopt the approach that's taken by many others, Matthew Henry among them, that this is a reference to the eternal generation of God the Son. In other words, there's a reason why the first person of the Trinity is called Father. There's a reason why the second person of the Trinity is called Son. It's because the relationship between them provides, so to speak, the model, the pattern that sets up the relationship between human fathers and sons. It's not that those relationships are completely identical. When we speak about the generation of God the Son, we always add the qualifier, the eternal generation, because there was no point when he did not exist. The Father was never without a Son. So if we're going to use that word generation, we need to use it with due care and circumspection to say it doesn't imply beginning. It implies relationship, a specific kind of relationship. So many commentators will see here the truth expressed taking the plural goings forth for a uh, for a singular an excellent an outstanding singular that from all eternity the son went forth from the father or to change the way we use the language a little bit, to say that the Father eternally begets the Son. Well, either way you take it, what does it tell you? It tells you that this ruler who was born in Bethlehem did not begin there. His human origin was in Bethlehem, if you want to put it that way, his birth. But the one who was born existed before then. He didn't start to be in Bethlehem. There was a previous going forth. There was something that happened earlier than that because this one to be born is truly human, but he's so much more than that. You can't limit him to that. Now, having seen the double origin of this ruler, we also have to see the difficult arrival of this ruler. Notice what it says in verse 3. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. Now, you might remember when we started reading in chapter 4, there was a reference there to the daughter of Zion experiencing labor pains. Pangs have seized you like a woman in labor. And this was something that was discussed among the Jewish people was the whole idea of the birth pangs of the Messiah. In other words, there were difficulties, there were trials, there were afflictions that came in the lead up to the revelation and the appearance of the Messiah. 
Well, that is certainly true. When the Lord Jesus was born, it was a difficult time in many ways. There was much hardship, and much hardship surrounded his birth. There was hardship for Joseph and Mary with the complications, the threat to their relationship, of course, when Mary was discovered to be with child by the work of the Holy Spirit, the difficulty of having to travel, the difficulty in finding hospitality in Bethlehem at the time, but then the slaughter of the other children of Bethlehem when Herod realized he wasn't going to get a name and an address for Jesus. So he said, well, let's just kill them all. There were birth pangs along those lines because judgment and blessing come interweaved. God brings blessing out of judgment and out of hardship. And so here the announcement is that in one way or another, to some degree, they'll be given up until this great deliverance comes, until there is this special birth. Now, I think we can apply this broadly because you remember what we talked about. There's these recurring patterns in the history of the people of God. So we could apply it very broadly and we could say that, yes, God's people go through seasons and their deliverance through seasons of affliction and their deliverance comes at the proper time. We could apply it very particularly and say, of course, there was a proper time for Mary to give birth and bring forth her first begotten son and wrap him in swaddling clothes and lay him in a manger. There was an appropriate time for that to happen. We could even extend it more broadly if we wanted to, if we remember what Paul said to the Galatians when he said, my little children of whom I travail again in birth until Christ be formed in you. There is a sense in which the Lord Jesus needs to be born in our hearts through the ministry of the word. That's why Paul is using that that rather unusual language there and speaking of himself as experiencing birth pangs until it's clear that Christ is present in the hearts of the Galatians. In that way, we could apply this to ourselves, to the work of the church, to the church throughout history until the Lord returns. There will be birth pangs in the life of the individual believer. Coming to faith in Christ is not always easy. And living by faith in Christ is not always easy. Or then the whole project of evangelizing the world is not going to be easy. It's not going to be smooth. It's not going to be trouble-free. There will be much difficulty. There will be considerable suffering. But if we can think about those as birth pangs, then you see that the suffering has a point, that you're going through a process that results in something worthwhile. Well, when she who is in labor has given birth, something worthwhile happens. The remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So there's a double origin to the Messiah. There's a difficult arrival of the Messiah. But then finally, there is a delightful quality to our Messiah, which it highlights in verse 4. He shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. What is this ruler in Israel like? 
Well, you remember what the people of God have experienced. How many bad rulers have they had at the point that Micah is prophesying? How many bad rulers had they had by the time that Christ was born? The idea of a ruler is not always a comfort. But here's a ruler who stands and feeds his flock. In other words, he acts as the shepherd of his people. He takes care of them. How often in the scriptures do you have that image of a shepherd? And what is it an image of? Well, it's an image of tenderness. It's an image of watchfulness. It's an image of care. It's an image of provision. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's what is communicated in this. And what does the shepherd in Psalm 23 do? What does the Lord do? Well, he guides you. He leads you. He brings you home. He provides for you. He anoints your head with oil. He gives you an overflowing cup. Your enemies, the valley of the shadow of death, those things don't matter because he's with you. His rod and his staff comfort you. And he brings you to the house of the Lord to dwell forever or in The book of Isaiah, what is the image of the shepherd? Well, he picks up the little lambs and he carries them in his arms. Or in the book of John, what does the good shepherd do? Well, he lays down his life for the sheep. So this image of the ruler as shepherd is a wonderfully comforting, and encouraging image. This one to be born out of Bethlehem will not be a tyrant, will not be somebody who fleeces the sheep. He will be the kind of shepherd who ministers to them. You notice what it says at the beginning of verse one, this one shall be peace. Christ himself is our peace. He is our peace with God. He is our peace of heart. He is our peace with one another. It also says about him that he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Well, that ties in with our series on Mark. The next sermon on Mark will be considering Christ's command to preach the gospel to every creature. It ties in with our call to worship. We who fear the Lord are to say continually, the Lord be magnified. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. This one who is born in a situation of affliction, in humiliation, in poverty, who arises out of little, insignificant Bethlehem. Yet what a glory he confers on that town so that when Matthew quotes this verse, he has to adapt it a little bit. He has to say that Bethlehem is not the least among the thousands or among the the cities of Judah. Well, not anymore. Not after the great deliverer was born there. Prior to that, it was, yes, a little insignificant town. Being born there was not a sign of glory, but if anything, of humiliation, of the decline of David's dynasty. Oh, but now that this one has been born there, doesn't a special glory radiate around Bethlehem? Don't we get excited at the idea of it, the idea of going and seeing it? Because... This happened. His name will be great to the ends of the earth. And deservedly so. Who should be 
better known than this ruler of Israel? Who should be more famous? With whom should we be more familiar? His name shall be great. Well, there's a question, an application for us. Is his name great in our hearts, among us? Well, if it is, we will use his name, but we will use his name with reverence, with respect, with deep affection and appreciation. The name of Jesus can never be a curse word, can never be something just to add emphasis to a random statement. It can only be something that we pronounce with love, with longing. It cannot be a reason for joking, but something that we reverence because of the one who bears that name. Or here again, is his name great among us? Well, can anybody else tell? Can anybody else tell that we think highly of the name of Jesus? Not just because we're careful in how we use it, but also because we're eager to make him known to those who don't yet know. Do we have a missionary zeal? Let me just be very blunt with everybody. If we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and yet we have no zeal for other people to hear and to know, something is very badly wrong. There is some enormous disconnect between acknowledging Jesus as this magnificent one who's prophesied here and indifference as to whether we're doing everything we can to make him known or not. If we don't care about evangelism, if we don't care about mission work, what does that say about our actual belief or lack of it in the Lord Jesus Christ? Micah says his name will be great to the ends of the earth. If we believe that, if we believe in him, will we not be eager to be a part of seeing that prophecy fulfilled? Amen.